You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have uh, Lynn Caporelli. She's the author of Darwin in the Genome, Molecular Strategies and Biological Evolution. Uh, she's a biochemist who's focused her attention on evidence that natural selection uh, can act on mechanisms that generate genome variation, um, and this action can create things such as beaks and wings and other uh, adaptations from creatures. So uh, very lo- looking forward to speaking to her. So, Lynn, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good to be here. Yeah. So um, if we could start out, uh, what got you interested in, you know, in evolutionary processes so long ago, and what's your journey been like as you've been studying it? Well, I actually came in from a, a different direction. I was a chemistry major. I uh, then became interested in biochemistry and was actually trying to design inhibitors of an enzyme involved in inflammation in the complement system. There were related enzymes involved in blood coagulation, and I didn't want to block them while blocking inflammation. And so I began to think about the relationship between or among proteins in a protein family and how they might have evolved, how uh, specificity kind of becomes overlaid upon homology in a protein family. And uh, so, and at the same time, I was reading about uh, Shannon and codes and thinking about the genetic code. Actually, in somebody's qualifying exam, my mind wandered a bit and realized that because the genetic code is uh, called redundant, in other words, there are, or degenerate, there's different ways of specifying the same amino acid, you actually can send additional information through the same DNA sequence. And one type of information I hypothesized was information that would vary the mutation rate. So if you were evolving a new member of an, of an active gene family, you might explore the active site that focuses the action of the protein rather than damage the structure of the protein so that mutation would be modulated through evolution. Well, okay. So a bunch of questions. Um, I, I don't know if I'm expressing this properly, but if you have a given sequence of DNA, can that sequence be read at different starting and stopping points to create different proteins? You know, let's say it's a, I don't know, a thousand base pairs long. Can you read it uh, from one to 500 and get one protein and then 501 to a thousand get another or, you know, Yes, well, that happens even in uh, in bacterial phages that have very compressed um, genomes. For example, the first uh, genome sequence was of uh, a phage, uh, you know, bacterial virus, a tiny genome, and they did find overlapping genes. But beyond the uh, what you point out, the overlapping protein coding information, you can have additional information. Uh, so a protein coding sequence might specify a string of amino acids. But you could have additional information that might affect how rapidly that string of amino acids would vary in one region of it compared to the other region of the same protein and other kinds of information. It could all be overlaid and you might not even, you might think you know, you'd see a protein sequence. We know how to translate from uh, DNA to through using the table of codons or the genetic code into a protein sequence. So we might think, oh yeah, we know what that sequence of DNA quote means, but there may be other information in there that we don't even look for because we think we know everything, right? <laughs> but we don't. 
So uh, as we... Yeah, because this is a... That's amazing. It makes you wonder how complex is, you know, our genetic code. I mean, it makes me think, you know, I've, I've heard that like, there's no such thing as a gene or it's hard to define it. And maybe just that, that one reason alone that the same stretch of uh, base pairs can code for different things in different ways tells you, well, there is no, you know, this, this stretch of uh, 500 base pairs, you can't call it a gene because it's, it's not really read that way. It can be read many different ways or interpreted. Yeah, and there are kinds of information in the genome that we may not be aware of. We're learning more over time, but uh, there are you know just different levels of information running through the same DNA sequence. Well, how do we how do we know that that there's different levels, and what do you mean? What kind of information? What other info could there be? Well, one uh, one type of uh, example would be that uh, you know when when you copy DNA to RNA. In uh, someone like us, or you know, an animal, there are these uh, introns and exons. So the RNA says DNA is copied to RNA, and then the RNA is translated into protein. But the original, the DNA copied to RNA, the original RNA is longer. There are there are spaces in the RNA that's sliced out before the so-called message, uh, messenger RNA, goes to the protein factory or ribosome to make the protein. So the parts that are sliced out, there is information at the edges of the protein coding sequence and even inside the protein coding sequence that helps direct um, the splicing system to make the cuts in the right place. So uh, that would be Good. another kind of information overlaid on the protein that might constrain. So there may be several ways to specify a particular amino acid in the table of codons, but it, the, which one of those um, triplets you use to specify the amino acid might be constrained by the need to send additional information, such as uh, where the slice site is or uh, other kinds of information. So within DNA itself, there could be hidden levels of instruction to do things besides just transcribing that particular uh, that particular segment of DNA and and making you know x number of proteins with it right right that's pretty amazing <laughs> so what, yes and and, it, and the information can be i mean the other interesting thing about this other information is it can be represented in ways we don't know so for example we think of DNA as a t g and c they're letters but really, they're not letters. They're physical chemical entities. And the proteins that interact with DNA or the RNA view it as an, a physical chemical entity. Obviously, they're not reading letters. So the information can be uh, in the structure of DNA, the physical chemical property uh, properties, the relationship between neighboring sequences, rather than just in the letters that we, quote, read ourselves. And, you know, it just made me think of a protein, you know, proteins fold in certain ways, but can proteins fold in different ways and still have a stable configuration? Or I guess they could have different properties depending on how they fold, if they fold differently, right? Well, certainly, I mean, proteins also can, a particular protein can have multiple conformations that can be um, manipulated by the small molecules in its neighborhood. So that's one way a small molecule might be able to regulate the behavior of a protein, so that molecule could be so protein could be sensitive to uh, uh, you know a nutrient the, the level of a nutrient might change the activity of a protein or some metabolite. So yeah, so there's a tremendous amount of 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 regulation of the behavior of proteins and DNA within the life of an individual. And what my right. what my work was focused on is how the um, genome changes over time, rather than just focus on the individual. Look at it over time, and then you begin to think about evolution. Well, that's that's another question. How does our genome change over time? Is it is it more like you know epigenetics and expression of genes is what changes, or is it the underlying sequence of base pairs in us, for instance, uh, that changes over time as well? Well, ultimately, over time, of course, the base pairs change. You're right. Epigenetic regulation is important, too. But uh, that's how you get from uh, the original uh, 
single cell organisms and then the initial multicellular organisms to people, right? That there are a base pair changes in DNA. So then the question is, um, how does that happen? And a lot of people, I think one big misconception that people have, and there are a few I can discuss, but one is when they say random mutation, the assumption, the way we use random in our everyday life, uh, is that any any mutation is equally probable. But that's really not the case. And even Darwin himself, uh, he really never said random mutation. In fact, I have a quote from him. He said, I've sometimes spoken as if the variations have been due to chance. This, of course, is wholly incorrect, but it serves to acknowledge plainly our ignorance of the cause of each particular variation. The concept of random was introduced by the early statisticians, such as Fisher and others, who developed evolutionary theory uh, long after Darwin. And um, it, But it's really not accurate, because if you think of the components of random, the first thing you would think, the, the casual use of the word random, is that anywhere in the DNA, you could have an equal probability of any kind of genetic change. And that's not true. As a biochemist, that never seemed like a reasonable thing because DNA is varied. A polymerase, the enzyme that copies DNA can make a mistake, or the enzyme that repairs DNA might miss an error. And how likely that is really varies depending on the physical chemical properties along the DNA sequence, uh, which it, any DNA sequence there is, has varying physical chemical properties along it just because it's made up of the ATTG. And, you know, GGGG is going to have different physical properties from ATATAT. So uh, it, this is a variation. And evolutionary theory says that selection acts on variations. So, so what I proposed is selection would act on the variations of probability along the genome just as it acts on variations in beaks and wings. And so eventually, there would be kind of a feedback control model of evolution where the variation and selection are in a kind of a loop, and variation is not outside of that loop. It's, it's um, the, the genomes that generate variants that are more likely to survive are the genomes that will uh, be more effective at adapting and therefore would tend to survive. So, uh, in well, other words, uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, there's survival, but then there's, uh, you know, changes. How do creatures evolve from other creatures? I mean, so survival is just one thing, but variation seems to be a completely different thing. Well, adaptation, adaptation of is a so if you think of variation along lineages, uh, you know we all think of of, of contemporary populations. So uh, so in other words, you think of fitness in terms of you know the, some people when they think of of fitness in Darwinian terms, they think of one fit individual who's reached the peak of fitness and is the strongest and toughest and so on. But the environment can change dramatically. And so that organism or individual who seems very strong at the moment may, in fact, if the environment changes, not be the, the strongest. And so what you want is a population of individuals that are diverse. So actually, diversity is a form of fitness. And then when you have this very diverse population of individuals, if some of them are always in one environment and some are always in another environment, they may diverge further uh, apart and you can begin to, you know, it, it call them. Eventually they may become different species. But the, the main point I want to make here is that um, diversity is a form of fitness, something that gets okay. missed a lot, you know. Well, when you and, say diversity, what what kind of diversity within a population would be a, a signal of fitness? You know, what's an example? Okay, well, let me give a simple example from bacteria. So, um, bacteria have coat proteins, you know, proteins on their surface, in addition to all their the things they're doing. Let's talk about pathogens. So, a, a bacteria can infect us, 
and our immune system can see, will see the surface of the bacterium and mount an immune response against it. Now, suppose, and you know, bacteria can divide and have descendants every 30 minutes, say. So suppose that the coat of the bacterium is very likely to mutate compared to, say, its internal proteins like DNA, the, the enzyme that copies DNA or something. So if you have a, a coat, now how would that happen? Well, if you, say you have a sequence of DNA that's CAG, 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 that's encoding the coat protein, or CAG, TCAG, you know, a repetitive sequence, or CCCCC, then the DNA polymerase can sometimes slip and get out of line. It can miss a repeat. And then the protein will change, or it may be knocked out and a different protein appears on the surface um, because the bacteria has different, um, if, if we're knocking out an enzyme that's involved in constructing a surface feature of the bacteria. So the main thing I'm saying is if you have a very, any one bacterium, its descendants will be very diverse on the coat. And that kind of diversity will protect it because the immune system will figure out how to attack uh, one coat, and then the bacterium will uh, make another coat. And uh, that's how li the lime spirochete actually uh, is very effective. It keeps sticking patches into its DNA to vary its coat, so the immune system can't keep up with it. So that would be a form of survival. And it's also interesting that bacteria have... Uh, what I would call uh, reversible mutation. So there's one meningococcus, for example, there's a, a bacteria that needs one version of its coat to uh, avoid the complement system, which is one of our antibacterial systems in our blood, but it needs a different version of its coat to stick to our tissue. So what's the bacterium going to do? It can either stick to our tissue or avoid the complement system. So what it does is it generates multiple descendants, some of which can avoid complement and, and some of which can stick to our tissue. So any individual bacterium will have descendants that can do both. So it can survive and it can, it, its population of descendants can survive and stick to our tissue. So that, well, why, why that, call this uh, activity mutation? Why not call it adaptation? Because it, you know, well, it's it purposeful. It's, it's directed. That's very interesting. So it is mechanistically a, a mutation because the DNA varies. Uh, but the question is, but you're absolutely right. It's it's adaptive. This this has been captured by um, the genome to generate variation in certain spots, and therefore genomes that are efficient at doing this are better at adapting and surviving. And I guess another question is, you know, who's calling the shots? Who's orchestrating this uh, this adaptation or what is orchestrating the adaptation? Let's say in a, in a bacteria, is there any, I mean, have we been able to determine what is the driver of this? Yes. Yeah, so what's happening is you have a population, say you, you have, say you start with a, a bacterium that does that doesn't vary its code. It has a, a high rate of variation somewhere else, perhaps, but not in its code. And you have another lineage of bacteria that generate these variations in the code. And then you infect an individual, and the individual's immune system will mop up the bacterium that didn't change its code. So you have so that's why we call it selection. Is, there's selection and variation, selection and variation. And the groups that are more, the, the variants that are better at surviving are um, favored and they survive. And then the, the, that lineage that generates the focus variation in the code is the one that survives. So that's right. kind of what's, that, that's this feedback control model of evolution. You know, so you generate variants. And they can be distributed just because of the biochemical variation. And, and then it becomes selected for and adaptive. And so the ability evolves, it's self-evolved. I guess an odd question is, you know, does there have to be... Okay, so in the bacteria, for instance, where is the bacteria's mind or brain? What directs this adaptationary drive or is it just an emergent property of the biochemistry, do you think? Well, it starts with the biochemistry, yeah. I mean, 
the the bacteria's mind. I mean, bacteria know things. They we could say they know to swim to they swim towards certain things. They swim away from certain things. So within their lifetime, they have those kinds of behaviors that have evolved because if you swim away from a nutrient or swim towards something that's toxic, well, those bacteria have died out, you know, but so, but then over evolutionary time, as you say, it emerges from the biochemistry. You have some intrinsic variation just due to simple biochemistry in the, the probability of different mutations along a genome. And when those mutations are aligned with the kind of challenges that the genome faces over and over, because the environment has structure, right? The, for example, a bacteria pathogen will continually face the uh, challenge of our immune system. So when, when the environment has structure, the organism can evolve compensatory structure through this variation, selection, variation, selection, feedback loop over evolutionary time. Yeah, it's just odd to me that, you know, there's a big school of thought that, you know, evolution's all random and purposeless, and, but yet everything else that life does is very purposeful. So why why do you think people, you know, oh, the rules are different for evolution, but for everything else there's a purpose, but it's no. Right. I think, yeah, I think it, it, there's, um, so there's a couple of things that are misunderstood. The use of the word random is definitely inappropriate, given the common use of the word random. If you use a kind of a technical mathematical definition of random, which is probabilistic, but it can be uneven, um, that's a different, uh, that's different. But in our common everyday discourse, we use random to mean anything is equally probable. And that is certainly not appropriate for looking at genome variation. And it's just yeah, like the language is poor. It makes no yes. sense why it would, you know. Yeah, and I think so. I think there are several mis things that are one is the misuse of the word random, uh, because over evolutionary time frames, lineages of organisms have uh, gotten better at adapting. And uh, secondly, is the use of the word fitness, which I talked about a little bit earlier. That diversity is a form of fitness, and um, people in, in common everyday discourse think of fitness. You think of this one really strong person who's healthy, and but in fact, fitness um, depends on diversity. You can imagine if a different, like a new virus swept through the community, um, the, the, if everybody was exactly the same and the virus was exactly matched to the people who were there, everyone could be wiped out. And we had that example with the in the early days of the HIV epidemic before we had any protease inhibitors or other compounds to treat it, uh, that the people who had this one rare mutation in a protein called uh, CCR5, the Delta 32 mutation, they, they just survived. You know, everyone was wondering why are these individuals who clearly were infected uh, or exposed to the virus, why didn't they get sick? And that's because they, there was a variant in the population and it protected them. So in general, the concept of diversity is important. I mean, I can give an even simpler example. In the old days when we were all living in the forest yeah. and um, it, you'd want some people who were early risers and some who stayed up late. So we'd always be protected in our population in the middle of the night. So, you know, if something came to attack us, somebody would be awake, right? If everybody went to sleep at 10 p.m. and woke up at 6, we might miss uh, something that came at 2 in the morning. So diversity in a population is a form of fitness. And another uh, issue that gets um, mistaken is uh, I, cooperation is another form of fitness. Again, we all think of ourselves as strong and, or, and competent and the greatest or whatever many people do. But the fact is, um, cooperation is important. For example, let's go to bacteria. Uh, antibiotic resistance spreads from a bacteria that has an antibiotic resistance gene. It shares it with another bacterium. So that other bacteria doesn't have to evolve antibiotic resistance from scratch. And there are these uh, plasmids or transposons traveling among bacteria that 
have resistance to almost every known uh, antibiotic on them. So the bacteria cooperate and share this information. And of course, the human genome, uh, if you go back a few generations or go forward a few generations, anyone's genome is really shared with, um, it comes from a, a lineage of thousands of people. It's, it's created it, it, in our, the egg and sperm combination that created each individual, but then it goes on to those who have children and grandchildren it gets split up again. So again, the human population is sharing pieces of the genome. So cooperation is really essential in in the evolution and in the fitness and carrying on of DNA over time. Cooperation, diversity, okay. and um, and then this feedback control rather than randomness are three important concepts. What about, um, is there any, any evidence of a new species or dramatic evolutionary changes that, that people have observed that are occurring right now? Or is it, it just seems like, oh, it happened long ago and no one's seen it now. And why is that? And can you elucidate that a bit? Well, uh, aside, I think speciation is a, a slightly more complicated issue uh, than, than the evolution of a population. But I think uh, the example I gave of, of HIV, if, if it, when it would spread through a community um, in the absence of any medical treatment, everyone who was not intrinsically, in other words, preemptively resistant to it uh, would have died. And many did, tragically. And so that would change within a few years. The genome of the the shared genome of the community, and you look at uh, why is there such a high incidence of sickle cell trait in populations in areas where malaria is endemic, and that's because if you get one sickle cell gene and one normal what we would call normal here hemoglobin gene from your parent then you're resistant to to malaria, but you don't get sickle cell disease. So if you don't have the sickle cell trait uh, and you have two so-called, quote, normal for us uh, who, who are living in a, you know, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in a temperate zone without malaria endemic here, we go to, the, we're, we're susceptible to malaria, whereas a person who has one sickle cell gene and one normal gene would be stronger under those circumstances than we are, um, they would be resistant to malaria. So you see how even within the human population, there are going to be regional differences depending upon the challenges that communities have been uh, exposed to over time. But at, at what point would something more dramatic happen? Is it a pileup of changes over time until there's this... Uh, tipping point where a new species emerges or, you know, had, like I'll give you an example. I went to a whale museum in Iceland and they're saying, oh, you know, the whales have vestigial legs and feet. And what they think is that, you know, they were land, they were land creatures that walked back into the sea and became whales. You know, right. how would, how would such a thing like that happen? Such a dramatic well, change. Over, yeah. Over extensive periods of time. So, I mean, one, if you go back to the hypothesis that certain regions of the genome may tend to vary more, I would, depending, so for bacteria, you would say, oh, the coat proteins definitely are highly variable for the bacteria interacting with the environment. For us, for us now, I'm speaking about vertebrates in general, so that would include our friends, the whales and the animals that became, that whose descendants were whales. Perhaps the bone structure tends to vary a little bit more so that we can um, it, explore adaptations of, of different forms of um, limb structure that would be useful in different environments. So it wasn't like the, 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 the animal walked into the sea and its kids were whales. It happened over time. And eventually the, the animals uh, separated from the ones who were on land and became better and better adapted to uh, the environment there. And, and speciation is, um, you know, a more complicated discussion in terms of is it um, reprodu isolation? In other words, once you can't, repro you, you can't reproduce with 
that other organism than the species, then you're considered separate species, which is a kind of traditional definition of speciation. But I think rather than get into what technically is defined as speciation, I think you can just think in terms of generating variation that's appropriate to the environment and then generating more variation that's appropriate to the environment and, and that certain, uh, and, and then the becoming so comfortable in that environment that you don't go back, you know, and you, and you couldn't go back, you know, you, you've lost adaptation. For example, we lost, um, we, we require vitamin C as the so-called limeys, you know, as the British sailors discovered that mm-hmm. you would get scurvy. So, but we, you know, our ancestors a long, long time ago, uh, could make vitamin C, but we had it in our environment. And so we, um, it wasn't an essential trade, and apparently somewhere along the line we'd lost the ability to to make it. So, uh, so, so you. But can if people see tried that. to, uh, like, why haven't people tried to take like fruit flies and breed them and breed them and breed them and pressure them selectively so they turn into something else? You know, maybe you can get a thousand generations of fruit flies, and you can get them pretty far along into a different direction or a new direction so they turn into something else. I mean, is there well, evidence, so, uh, any evidence that we, we've seen speciation in our time? Well, I think what you're asking is so you define uh, selection. So you pick pick what you want, what selective trait you, you're selecting for um, when you say put them in a different environment. So, for example, they've put bacteria in, in uh, environments where they've stressed them for nutrients, and they found uh, that certain genes will amplify. In other words, if they need more of a certain nutrient, they will amplify certain genes that will help them to survive under the um, that specific nutrient stress. So the whole back, the whole population, uh, in the whole population, you will find the survivors have amplified a specific gene that helps them survive in that stressful situation. Um, but it, I w- okay. That wouldn't be speciation in that case because if you took the stress away, then they wouldn't be they'd stop carrying all these extra copies of the gene around. They tend to lose it in that specific example. So when you want to put a, uh, but but you can I mean you can by selecting a population you can make it uh, adapt to members of the population will be favored who are able to adapt to the new circumstance you put them in. But I, mean, I know it's a complicated question, but what's your guess? How, like, how did, how did, you know, if we started in the sea, how did creatures leave the sea and never go back and be able to breathe on land or you know, breathe in the air? Or how did things fly? How did, how did that happen? No matter how much you willed it, how do you, how do you adapt so that you can fly versus not fly? You know, where do birds come from? Dinosaurs, actually. <laughs> They came from dinosaurs. So that's an active area of research. Now, I'm a biochemist, okay, so that's not my area of expertise. But from what I've read, um, feathers um, may have initially been for, for uh, heat, you know, you know, like your, your hair stands up on edge, maybe for heat uh, protection or other kinds of, uh, not not immediately to fly, but they were useful eventually to, to birds, but birds did come from dinosaurs and people now talk about non-avian dinosaurs um, being the, the original time, but they've found the lineages. And, and, I mean, and I recommend to anyone who's interested in that specific question, a place like the American Museum of Natural History, will, you can walk through there and they can, they'll take you through the current thinking about how uh, birds evolved. To, to answer your question, but as a biochemist and with this kind of more molecular oriented or genomics oriented um, approach to thinking about evolution, my thought, again, going back to that issue that vertebrates may tend to explore limb structure more, have more variation in terms of how long their limbs are, how thick they are, and so, so they would explore the adaptive potential of um, variations in limb structure, that that would be one of the areas that vertebrates might explore. Well, even, uh, any change, any adaptation, does it happen on the level of, uh, of on an epigenetic level, you know, where methylation has changed and, you know, the histone level, or does it happen on the 
DNA level where literally the sequence will be changed, or is it both? You know, where do these well, things there are, I mean, both. Yes, both things can affect. Um, uh, it can affect the phenotype. The, 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 you know, the, what the organism is like. Both epigenetic changes that are are and and for example, even though changes to the sequence of the DNA traditionally has been the main focus of heredity. We do know that, for example, the famous example of the Dutch hunger, that uh, that descendants of those who experienced famine during World War II were did have uh, did have effects on their metabolism and and their uh, that were uh, passed down among generations. In fact, that the parents had experienced uh, a great famine, but the majority of changes uh, over evolutionary timescales are definitely at the DNA level. So you can have variation both in uh, regulation of genes, various epigenetic changes, heat shock proteins that may protect different variant structures, but over evolutionary timescales, definitely the, the dramatic changes are changes in the DNA. So I guess in order for a change to change a species, it would have to occur in multiple instances in a given species almost contemporaneously so that they could mate with each other and select themselves in some manner. It doesn't seem likely that, oh, there's a random change in one of the members and that created a whole new species because it you know, was able to breed so successfully as to change the entire species. So it seems like, I, I don't know, it's just my theory, but I don't know. Right. And there, so going back to the fruit flies that you mentioned, they have seen things uh, where a piece of the DNA inverts and um, it, it then uh, that messes up how the chromosomes interact during uh, uh, meiosis so that uh, only, th- th- only um, organisms that have a uh, that similar inversion can breed with each other, even though if we looked at them, we'd say, well, they're all fruit flies, right? But so, so there are, but again, um, my focus is on the, the, the underlying biochemical mechanisms that generate diversity in the genome and uh, not on the the more the, the issues that uh, you've brought up, for example, biological um, uh, speciation, which a, a biologists, uh, evolutionary biologists w- w- really focus on. You've also brought up um, some of the anthropological, the issues of anthropology. Uh, so I don't claim to be an expert in those areas. Hmm. Well, how about all right? So you know, I'm sorry to take you out of your expertise. No, it's zone, all interesting. Even, I mean, it's it's all no, interesting. No. Yes. Well, even within all right. So biochemistry—that's your big thing. Have you or anyone documented at a biochemical level a creature that has a stress applied to it, and literally the steps and what change in the biochemistry and what happened first and next and you know, the whole cascade that led to a change in, you know, the arrangement of base pairs of DNA or an epigenetic change. Have we even elucidated well, that well, mechanism biochemically? Okay, so you've brought up another interesting point, which is the, the effect of stress. So uh, people had assumed, uh, again, uh, taking into the, the word random, that that, that gen- genetic variation uh, occurs kind of evenly over time, and there's even this concept of a molecular clock. But in fact, starting with Barbara McClintock and her study on uh, mace, uh, she observed that uh, certain kinds of stress, including um, the kind of stress that might break DNA, uh, will generate a um, stress response that causes specific variations in the genome. Now, she saw uh, actually that genes could jump which from one part of the genome to the other under stress, which people found incredible, but eventually uh, the mechanism of that was worked out that, uh, that uh, enzymes were induced that could move pieces of DNA around uh, transposases. Evelyn Wittgen also found a kind of global stress response in bacteria called the, which uh, Radman called the SOS response, meaning uh, because his father had been a, uh, a sea captain, sh- save our ship. Okay. 
that when the, the organism was, for example, irradiated with ultraviolet light and there was a lot of DNA damage, there was a stress response that would, for example, copy DNA. It would get across some of these damaged places and it would not do it as accurately because the accurate copying mechanism would just be blocked at those damaged spots. And so it would be inaccurate copying. It would generate variation in the descendants. And it was a kind of a global response that did other things in the bacteria too. So, and there's increasing studies on the effect of that. So the bacteria senses, it has to sense that it's under stress, whether that's mm-hmm. its DNA is damaged or it's, uh, it's under nutrient stress. It has to sense that. And then there's a downstream signaling pathway that will then affect a variety of systems in the bacteria, including the DNA replication, the accuracy of the DNA replication. Yeah. Well, from what you've seen, is it a really complicated path to start from stress to adaptation, start to finish? Do Do we have all the steps in any kind of adaptation or we just kind of, we know generically, but not exactly? Well, it, it's just slowly, it, it's research over time. So we're, we're learning more and more. It's easier now that we have whole genome because we can begin to, you know, you don't have to just look, you know, is this gene doing something that you can begin to look at the kind of wiring of what genes affect which other genes, you know, we can, we can look more globally at the process. So as with much of biology now, having the ability to look at the whole genome, we can uh, sort out these signaling pathways, mechanisms, inputs, um, cascades of signaling, and then outputs much more uh, efficiently. So we're learning a lot about that right now. What about the, uh, <laughs> make it even more complicated, but what about our microbiome? You know, perhaps that, uh, you know, it, it seems like bacteria are able to change and change their DNA and, you know, morph much more quickly than eukaryotic cells, you know, or, or somatic cells or germ cells. Um, I don't know. I mean, have, have people even looked at how the microbiome could be playing a part in our response or anyone, any creature's response to stress and helping to assist the, uh, the adaptation? Yes. I mean, it's very interesting. We knew for years, I think every, every biology student, in, and even if you didn't take biology, knew that termites um, didn't really chew the wood. They, they had to have bacteria inside them to digest the wood and that they were dependent on their bacteria. And so we knew that for termites, but we never realized that we also, you know, had a lot of bacteria inside us and that those bacteria were doing things. And now we know, and there's even um, been discussion of you know, bacteria. First of all, they interact with each other. So one bacterium can make a, a compound that the neighbor, it might diffuse out and the neighbor could use it and then make something else and then another, so that they share. They don't all, they're not all required to, to duplicate all of the intermediary metabolism and all the steps. So the sharing compounds are interacting. And then what in the last, I would say, five years has become apparent is they also, uh, they, is that we have neurons in our gut and um, they can uh, send out small molecules that can have effects on our, um, on our own cells, signal our own cells. So uh, that's a hmm. whole area of research. You might want to find, uh, uh, I could recommend later, some people might want to talk about that on the podcast, that how the microbiome interacts with our cells and our um, even uh, some neurons, so with our metabolism. And, it, and our, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you this way early on, but you know, knowing what you know, how does your know, how does your brain not melt down when you, when you think about the complexity of uh, you know of, of living creatures, humans, otherwise? I mean, there's so many factors, so many things going on. It's just like unbelievable. Right. So. So one really important concept is organization and hierarchies and uh, of, of organization and regulation. The genome is definitely organized into different regions. Different regions are copied at different times. They're exposed to different probabilities of different kinds of variation. It's, a, it's an area that we're, we're just um, beginning to understand. 
but it's not like genes are randomly strung along uh, in the genome. There are regions uh, there, again, there's organization and, and there's levels of organization. There's hierarchies of organization. Um, another um, important concept, actually, uh, we introduced uh, with John Doyle, who's at Caltech, is it, 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 it's the a concept in engineering. Protocol is a term used in engineering for a set of rules by which components interact to create new levels of function. So um, there are protocols. I mean, a, a simple one would be the table of codons, the, the genetic code. So any any gene that uh, it can, it, it, you, it, anything we can get a gene from outside. A genetic engineer can put a gene in as long as it 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 follows the uh, protocol of the table of codons. It will be expressed mm. in the cell. There are more levels of um, protocol and, and uh, regulation in a kind of hierarchical organization. And uh, that's the only way everything can possibly work. And, and we don't understand. I mean, there's so much we don't understand yet yeah, about yeah. these many levels of organization. Or, I mean, you have to um, think about the whole idea of a single fertilized egg dividing and then dividing again and then dividing again and eventually becoming a person. And that is, a, you know, when you think about it, it's very, um, it's, it's awe-inspiring that that can happen. And I know yeah. I used to, like it, I mentioned the American Museum of Natural History, I used to bring, they have a, a slice through a sequoia tree there, which is, you know, one of the um, mountain sequoias. They're huge, very, people would dance on them in big groups, you know, they're very big. But they also had right in front of it, they had a, um, a sequoia seed, which is just a tiny little thing, uh, maybe a you know, quarter inch or something. And so you have to think about organization. I mean, what was in that little seed that could give you that big tree? Um, right, yeah. Yeah. So the, the concept of organization you bring up, how, does all, how can all this happen? They're, I know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a lot that we need to appreciate about. The, we take things for granted, but uh, yeah. we, there's a lot to learn. Well, I'll ask you one last question. This is a real softball one, okay? So from a biochemistry perspective, how did life begin? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there are, <laughs> there's a variety of theories. I mean, when I was in, in a high school, there was the famous uh, experiment where they they took the primordial soup as they thought it existed then and passed lightning through it. Um, Julia Childs did a beautiful version of this at the Air and Space Museum. I don't know if they still have that video uh, making a primordial soup. But since then, <laughs> yes, yes. And because That's what cool. happened is they took the compound, you know, what they, they thought was present uh, and, they, and then they, they irradiated and they found compounds formed that are, you know, they found amino acids and, and some nucleotides. Mm. They found things that are, quote, the building blocks of life. Now, right. life didn't crawl out of the uh, experiment, but they, they said, look, you can make these molecules this way. But now there's all kinds of other theories, including that life might have begun down at the uh, vents in the ocean, deep in the ocean. That the uh, uh, where there's a lot of sulfur as a source of energy because there's not a lot of sunlight down there. There's many different theories about how you get from this um, uh, inorganic uh, molecules to life forms. But there are, are many circumstances now where people have seen that these molecules can form, and then there's a matter of structuring it and organizing it whether it's on mm. a clay, you know, framework or how you isolate and create a cell, but that's certainly not a um, settled issue. But uh, okay. for those who are interested in that, uh, a lot of the astrobiology groups are, are interested in that too, because how would you mm. define and recognize life in a different setting? That's true, yeah, yeah that's true. Oy. So many, so many questions, but uh, this has been a great call. I really appreciate all your knowledge. So how can listeners that are curious about, you know, some or all of this stuff, how can they keep going and find out more? How do they 
reach out to, you know, find out more about your work or reach out or, you know, continue their education? Well, one thing I wrote Darwin in the genome for uh, to to for a, a general audience. I've been told by some of my friends it's not yeah. a beach read, but they have um, they have yeah. uh, read it, and I've tried to design it so that you can skip over some of the more complicated parts and pick it up. And it's not, you know, if if something gets frustrating, just try to continue a little later. So Darwin in the genome is a good place to start for those who are. Um, you know, already uh, scientists, computational biologists, biochemists. Uh, I also edited a volume, The Implicit Genome, and that brings up uh, this issue of hidden and new forms of information that are in genome that are uh, not as obvious as um, as they might be. And then, um, you know, they're not just these linear sequences. And then finally, this issue of the feedback loop itself. Uh, there is a technical article I've written with uh, John Doyle uh, entitled In Darwinian Evolution, Feedback from Natural Selection Leads to Biased Mutations. So those okay. are three, three different levels of, you know, of, of depending on how curious people are. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, excellent. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for coming. This has been an awesome call. Well, thank you. I appreciate your curiosity and enthusiasm for these ideas. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.